the body of Christ is so much bigger and more inclusive and wild and good and generous than just that one spot. And so if you feel called to that spot and you're strong enough to stay and live in the tension and continue to love people well and feel that it brings out greater strength and goodness and healing and anointing in you, then great. Stay there and flourish and do the work that God has called you to do. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast. I hope that you are doing well. My name is Casey Tigrett. I'm the the host and the interviewer and the recorder and the staff and the <laughs> marketing. And anyway, uh, that's what we do. So thanks for listening. If this is the uh, first time listening, thanks that you're listening to this. Uh, some of you have listened to the two previous episodes. And if you have, I uh, just want to say a big thanks to you. And I also wanted to clear up something. So <laughs> at the end of each of the first two episodes, uh, you heard me say, hey, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. And then hopefully you went there. Uh, but sadly, it wasn't there. Um, and it's not there. It's not you. It's me. Um, actually, it's iTunes. Uh, they have not yet put the podcast up for you to find. Uh, there's a long review process. Um, and usually it's long, but it's typically not this long. And so iTunes has not yet approved uh, the Otherwise podcast to uh, spread out to the public, I suppose. So you won't be able to find it there. You'll still be able to find it probably where you're listening to it right now, which is on my website, caseytigret.com slash podcast. So continue to listen there. And at the end of the show, I'm going to give you a way that you can find out when it goes live on iTunes as well. You can also follow, follow us at at otherwise pod on both Instagram and Twitter. Again, I said us, it's just me. Anyway, uh, today my guest is a lady named Sarah Bessie. Uh, You may be familiar with her work. If you're not, Sarah is a preacher and an author and a consultant, and she has a critically acclaimed blog that you'll find at her website, uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Bessie, B-E-S-S-E-Y.com. She's written two books, the first uh, called Jesus Feminist and the second called Out of Sorts. Uh, Now, I know right off the top, some of you are ready to turn it off because I used the F word and no, not that one, Uh, the word feminist. And so here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If that's the way you feel, will you give this podcast uh, a bit of a fair hearing? Uh, Because Sarah is going to explain what she means by that and also kind of help us understand that there is a there is an idea of Christian feminism that is not what uh, you may have grown up with or you may have heard about. Uh, so her book, Jesus Feminist, is an incredibly good book. The other is called Out of Sorts, and that's about what happens when your faith begins to fall apart and how do you uh, navigate that and what happens. And when we are putting our faith back together, what does that look like? Uh, the, some of you are in a process like that. You're in a process of deconstruction. You're losing all those things that you used to be built on and something new is coming to life, uh, but it's uncomfortable and you don't know what to do with it. And your grandmother thinks you're crazy, etc., etc. And I don't make light of that. Um, but Sarah is going to talk a bit about that as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Bessie. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being a part of this discussion conversation today. 
Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks, Casey. So for people um, that come on that I have this conversation with, I usually start with a question that I don't expect them to answer in full, but I love to hear uh, the beginnings of it, which is um, if you had to craft a definition of the word wisdom, where would you start? What would that look like? Oh, my goodness. That is a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Um I think, I think for me, if I had to craft a definition of, of wisdom, um, I think that there's probably a number of, of ways that you could look at that. I mean, you can look at the personifications of it. You can look at the people who are wise. Um, but when I think about what wisdom is, I think about it as, um, as not just knowledge, but also experience and grace. And it's something that is tempered with a lot of love. Um, there's a lot of opinions and a lot of beliefs and a lot of, you know, things that we can think or know even. Um, but I feel that wisdom also takes into account what is possible, what is hopeful, what is good, and what is loving in that moment as well. Um, and it has an eye on right. Um, so that's off the top of my head. I'm sure it makes no sense. I'd have to think about it a bit more. <laughs> Well, it is, it is interesting. And, and for some, in some ways it helps me to feel like this is a good conversation because wisdom is something that I think we assume and we know it when we see it, but we don't often talk much about it. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's very, it's a very ancient thing. It's a very good thing. Nobody, I've not heard anybody go wisdom. God, who needs that? Nobody needs it. Uh, but it's something that we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about. Which I think in light of you have a presence in Christian conversations that have to do with the intersection of culture and faith. Did you ever expect yourself to be there, by the way? Oh, never. Never in a million years. No, never in a million years. Um, I think I spent probably the first eight years of public ministry being surprised to be in the room. (laughs) So it took me a while to get there. And I think because um, I never had a, I mean, I'm from a charismatic tradition um, and background. And so we throw around words like calling, you know, super easily. And I never really felt called to that place, you know, in my, in my own heart. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to write about the things of God, but I did not know how this would go or look like. And so it has been an experience of communal affirmation of calling and of surprise and of delight and of goodness and uncovering things that I didn't know were gifts that maybe God had there. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's something that I love with my whole heart. But it is, it, it's a never ending joy, even to the people who have known me my entire life. They just cannot even believe <laughs> that I have landed. I think, especially because the nature of a lot of the conversations that I'm a part of, because I, I do a lot of writing and speaking and, um, and leading in the intersections of things like uh, faith and feminism and uh, politics and religion and theology and basically all the things that you're not supposed to discuss in polite company that bring out a lot of big feelings in a lot of people. And I tended to be someone who avoids conflict like it's my job. Like my ability to avoid conflict is really only exceeded by my ability to be passive aggressive and not saying something. So, <laughs> and so the fact that someone like me who like literally built my entire life around not 
creating conflict and avoiding conflict and wanting everybody to be at peace ends up in these spaces that need peacemakers is, is quite ironic sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you talk about the shift in calling and I would imagine people listening, there's some of us, some like me who grew up in a, in a tradition that had a very narrow conception of calling. Like there were certain things that if you were a Christian that you were definitely called to and other things that were like, ah, it's a close second. You know, like having, being a good business owner is fine, but if you were a pastor, then you were, you were really, and of course the tradition that I grew up in, that would have been only for guys. And then being a mom, of course, was the greatest calling ever, which, um, I can't speak to being a mom. You could speak to that. Uh, but what's interesting is it seems like there's a shift for you because being the person who doesn't want to create conflict, that doesn't seem like the person who would be called to step into just pick one like religion and politics. Mm-hmm. Is there an area that is more conflicted than that? How do you how do you reconcile those two things? Like you're growing up with this definition of calling and now, you know. You're in a you're in what seems like a very paradoxical spot. I think that um, I think that sometimes you know I, I love the, the the word calling and it's a word that I love to reclaim. Like a lot of things, I think after people have gone through a season of deconstruction within their faith, um, you end up having to rebuild or reconstruct. And a lot of times you'll leave things out because they were abusive or hurtful or just aren't necessary any longer or unhealthy or whatever. And for me, um, language was one of those things I really grappled with because I'm a writer and I love language with my whole heart. And part of me didn't want to give them up. I didn't want to give up the big words like salvation and sin and gospel and, um, you know, healing and wisdom and uh, calling, vocation, you know, any of these. My husband and I often jokingly call it like an evangelical hero complex that like grades the levels of your calling like you were talking like the king of the heap is the missionary and then there's the pastors and then there's the rest of us who are just the pew fodder you know <laughs> there to finance the real work of the ministry you know and so it, it just was such a broken and unhealthy view of vocation and work and ministry and calling and um i think that it wasn't until i really had a lot of those things dismantled that i was able to rebuild it into a much more healthy and holistic and seamless view of calling that it's not segmented and it's not compartmentalized and it's not just for one type of person either, that the Holy Spirit is moving and active and breathing in every corner of your life and in every type of person and you get to be fully human and fully alive no matter where God has called you or placed you, however you like to you know explain or, or talk about those things. But um, And it was not until I feel like there was a healing in my own life that led to that seamlessness that allowed me to embrace the fact that someone like me could find their voice and find some authority and find some strength to be able to, to step into those, um, that type of leadership. Yeah. The truly spiritual people are the ones who are the missionaries. Of course. And yet the most, I love what you said. It seems like the most spiritual thing any of us can do is to be human. Like one of them is a career path. And one of them is a reflection on the wisdom of being alive. Mm-hmm. Just figuring out how to be human when you lose your job at a church or when you, um, when you work in a, in a marketplace job and you're like, I really want to do something different. So I feel like I'm checking the right Christian boxes. And there's Jesus at the time going, no, why don't you just do this better? Yeah. <laughs> why don't you just be me here? 
when so when we start talking about spirituality, so you and I, it, from reading your books, from reading Jesus Feminist and um, Out of Sorts, it seems like you and I grew up in, a, in some similar traditions. And the one interesting thing that I find is uh, it seems like now I am and our culture is way more in touch with how our spirituality, our Christian spirituality, integrates with our bodies. And so I grew up in a church that said, don't smoke or chew or drink or chew or go with girls who do. <laughs> But a cholesterol fiesta at the potluck was totally fine. Like processed sugars and flat, it's fine. Just as long as you're not drinking a fifth of Jack while you're doing that, you're fine. Um, And so it seems like there's more integration with the body, which also means in some ways we have to tangle with, uh, not tangle, but understand the implications of things like gender. And so writing Jesus Feminist, you're, you're taking on something that has long been divided from spirituality. I think a lot of people who, people in the churches I grew up with would say, well, that's, it's not really an issue. How, how has that body spirit combo helped you to sort of craft the ideas, not only in Jesus feminist, but also as you're living in the intersection of those two conversations? Yeah. You know, um, even when I was working on Jesus Feminist, a big, a big motivator for me in writing that book was to help, I think, bring that conversation into regular churches. I mean, I am not a seminary person, right? I'm not an academic. Um, everybody who's an academic who read that book says, yes, we know. (laughs) (laughs) But there was this sense of almost, um, separation, like in the ivory tower of seminaries and academia, this conversation is over. It's already happened. And yet for the people who go to our churches or who live in our communities, um, there was still so much ambiguity and even fear around the conversation and a lot of baggage um, of all the ways that the church has kind of baptized patriarchal practices and language. And how do you have a good conversation about that without making everybody insane? And so I think that that was a a big part of it. And, and, um, and so a lot of the conversation for me even revolves around how we talk about women in our churches, how we perceive the female body, the, you know, women in, in ministry, their voices, their experiences, um, you know, their ways of reading scripture, uh, all those different things, right? And having greater unity in that place. I, I mean, a lot of it, too, was rooted in going back even to the story of creation and seeing that we are both made in the image of God, that it's not that God's a boy, Right. And that you have that male and female that we were all both with, that this whole thing, the whole um, understanding of gender is a reflection of um, of the image of God. And so to me, I think that's something beautiful and worth reclaiming um, rather than being afraid of or somehow pitting them against one another. Like it's some sort of zero sum game, uh, um, you know, that in order for women to flourish, men have to fail or in order for men to flourish, women have to fail. I mean, that just seems so counter to the gospel in uh in almost every way and so yeah it's uh it's definitely something i think that is still deeply necessary too i mean i wrote that book back in 2012 it's an imperfect book for sure but it has more relevance now i feel in almost six years later than it did at the time when i was writing it because of the conversation why is because um i think the world is desperate for a better view of womanhood 
I think that we understand that women are suffering and struggling and that the global story for women is not a healthy one. So what does the church have to say in this place? What do we have to say? And we begin to start to look at these structures and these things we've always believed and seeing them as insufficient to answer that question. And so what does it look like for women to flourish? Um, and I think the church and this and has something really incredible to offer in that conversation. So when you talk about that, um, oh, and I so want to talk about, about 900 things you just said, but I, that would be a six hour podcast. And while <laughs> I'm, I'm up for that, I'm sure you've got other things to do. Um, one of the, as you look back on the writing of Jesus Feminist and what you've learned since you said, uh, 2012, right. Um, What's what what kind of wisdom has arisen for you out of that as far as as soon as you write a book like that, you see people receive it on a personal level, uh, but you also see the institutional response and um, also sometimes known as trolling. Um, you see the institutional or the philosophical response that comes out of that. So what, what have you really, what have you come to understand as a result of just the whole experience of writing something with a title like Jesus Feminist that uh, people need to hear, but probably stood next to and went, ah, okay. How, what did what have you pulled from that and learned from that as it's gone on? Um, the years since, I'm thinking when the book very first came out, it was extremely provocative. Um, you know, a lot of the conversation around Christian feminism had really disappeared after the seventies. And then there was kind of this rise of the moral majority and, you know, the fear of feminism and the second, you know, and third waves of feminism coming out and almost leaving behind women of faith, um, you know, within all of that. And so it, I think the reason why it was so electrifying is because it, it almost made everybody on all sides angry. So I don't know if that means that I win. <laughs> or if I lose. But there were people who had in, in the church who had a huge issue with the word feminism. And then on the flip side, in feminist circles, they have a they could have a really huge problem with women of faith, um, with the fact of having your feminism deeply formed by your discipleship of, with Jesus. And so um the conversation certainly felt really fraught at the time. And one of the things I was not prepared for um I was definitely prepared for the criticism and reaction. Um, I was unprepared for how it would uh, shape and reframe me um, because I began to learn the hard way that listening to the people who think that you are, you know, amazing and brilliant and wise and so right and do nothing wrong is almost just as unhealthy as listening to the people who think that you're the, you know, second coming of Satan <laughs> and out to destroy everything that they hold dear and destroy the church. Um, neither one is a full vision of who you actually are. And so even in terms of soul care, um, I found that it was really good for me not to be exclusively listening to people who are dazzled by me or people who are disgusted by me. Um, and then on the other side too, I found that actually, um, even in terms of people who deeply disagreed with the book or disagreed with my conclusions, um, that I w was doing it a disservice to dismiss almost everybody as trolls. Um, that it was, I mean, there were certainly trolls, right? There were certainly people who just, you know, would call me horrible names and, um, you know, threaten me and verbally abuse me and do all those sorts of things that are all the fun that comes with being a woman with an opinion on the internet. But just because someone criticized me or disagreed with me didn't make them a troll. And in fact, I had a lot to learn 
um, from the conversations. And so I feel actually deeply grateful for some of the criticisms that I've received because it refined my own positions, my own theology, my own way of looking at it, um, some of the blind spots that maybe I had had um, at that time. And so it's been deeply formative in a good way um, to also listen to those folks. Um, one thing that I have loved about Jesus Feminist in the six years since it came, since I wrote it, I think it's been five years since it came out, but is uh, I have loved shepherding it in the world. I have loved pastoring the people who read it, um, of coming alongside them in their stories and being able to be just a small part in what the Holy Spirit is up to in the church right now and the story of women and the story of marriage and wholeness and leadership and the gospel. And I mean, just, it is such an honor and a gift and to be able to be a part of that conversation. Um, and that moment in people's lives is something I don't think I'll ever get over. Um, and I'm really grateful for. Would you write it again? I would write it again. Um, I might write some things differently, but I've actually been thinking about doing like a 10th anniversary of the book um, to do a few different things. Cause there were, there were definitely some blind spots within it. Um, for instance, at the time um, I just had not really awoken to uh, intersectional feminism at all. And so that shows up not at all in the book. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could make the argument that itself is a form of intersectional feminism because it has that intersection of faith and feminism. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of how feminism and, and even Christian feminism intersects with women of color um, yeah, so, is something that was not in the book at all. And I really regret that now. And I would like to fix that at some point. Hopefully. So for people who don't know what that term means, intersectional feminism, what, what does that mean? Oh, it, it simply means the places that, that deeply form your feminism, right? So like the, the places of your identity that intersect, right? So if you are a feminist, then your identity as a feminist, for instance, for me as a woman of faith, uh, intersects with that so that I'm not just a feminist. I am a Christian feminist. I am someone who is a feminist because I follow Jesus. And that deeply affects how I show up in the feminist conversation and how I show up at the table on either side. And you would say the same thing for women who are, um, or, or people who are uh, Indigenous or people who are African-American or people who are, um, you know, from different parts of, of their identity or their sexual identity or their socioeconomics or whatever else it is. And so you have those intersections with your feminism that, that change how you show up in the room and deeply color your experiences there and how you are experienced. And so it changes things. I'm noticing that a lot of the a lot of the very powerful voices and writing from all genders and, and sides of the Christian uh, world they seem to all hover around two very powerful and very important ideas, which is identity and presence. It's who you mm -hmm. are and it's how you show up. And that for me was why, and I, I don't want to jump too fast from Jesus Feminist, but that's, that's really why Out of Sorts I felt like was a very, is a very powerful book for a lot of people because what I, what I sense in that book is that you have wrestled with your bigger story from the perspective of both identity and how you show up to the present moment. Does that, 
Does that resonate with you and what you feel about how you wrote in uh, in Out of Sorts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that really informed um, the writing of Out of Sorts, which um, actually came out of Jesus Feminist, because I had included this little line in Jesus Feminist that said something along the lines of, um, I didn't go to church for six years and then I went back. And it would be funny how I would be in, it didn't matter whether I was in a university or I was at a school or at a church or at a conference, when we would open up the floor for questions or for Q&A, you know, we would go through all these questions around, you know, feminism and faith and, you know, egalitarianism and how to show up in your church and all these other And always at the very end, there would be somebody who would stand up and say, I need you to talk to me about this (laughs) thing about how you... You went to church and then you didn't for a long time and then you went back because I don't want to go anymore. And this was, um, you know, in 2013. And yet even so, there was a lot of people who were feeling very disenfranchised um, with the church. And that was a part of my own story. I mean, I mean, a number of years earlier, but I ended up writing the book I think I wished I would have had you know, 10 or 15 years ago um, in that, in that place. But one of the things that really shaped it was story and was then even pushing back on the notion that what you need are new answers, Um, which to me then comes back to uh, the, the idea that almost all of our theology is formed in our autobiography, right? That the ways that we experience and know and understand God happens through the lens of our days. It happens through our ordinary life. It happens through how we, where we wake up, where we were born, who we live with, and what, how we function and what we do. And these things deeply inform not only what we think and know and believe about God, but even I think what we hope for about God. And so then yeah. that be- becomes the place where I feel like our theology is best understood is in the midst of our stories. So with this, with this calling to step into these very um, tense places, Out of Sorts is, is sort of a shepherding manual for people who are most likely going to leave something very familiar behind. Um, how, how do you carry the weight of that? As a, as a person who writes and as a person who is read, which those two things can be different, uh, how how do you shepherd that, steward that level of influence with people who are saying, you know, I've been I've been in this tradition for my whole life, and I think it's time for me to leave, and you sort of become the tour guide uh, who helps to extricate them from that place, not forcefully. I mean, it's a choice. How how do you steward that? How do you think of that when you sit down to start tapping the keys? How do you think of that? Um. That's a good question. I feel very tenderhearted towards the people who read my books. I almost feel like I can see them sometimes. And I think that's one of the reasons why I actually um, began preaching and began um, speaking and and traveling was because a big part of me wanted to see them. (laughs) Right. And there's something very um, uh, real about the experience of writing a book and putting a book in people's hands. But then when you see them with your eyes, and you get a chance to wrap your arms around them and to be there and to hear more of their stories and hear more of where they came from. And it doesn't feel so one-sided any longer. Um, and that is something that I, I take very um, seriously and feel very closely um, in my work. It never feels one-sided for me. Um, I feel very tender towards people, especially when they're on that precipice of deconstruction, because I remember that one of the primary things that I felt in those moments was afraid. And I think that people often feel very afraid 
right? They fear that they're going to lose things. They fear that they're going to lose friends and family and relationships. They're going to lose their answers. They're going to lose their certainty and their comfort and their um, way of even understanding the world. And I think that oftentimes that can express as anger, but the, the root of it is fear and, and grief even. Um, and so for me, a lot of what I want to reassure people of through my books or through my work is that you don't need to be afraid. And even that if there's one thing to contend for in the midst of all this transition, it is to contend for the fact that you are loved that you are loved in the midst of it, not because of your right answers, not because of the church you go to, not because of who you vote for, not because of what is or isn't true about what you believe today, tomorrow, or 20 years from now, that the the journey and the awareness of the Holy Spirit, the walking with that, that the, the belovedness that you experience in Christ, no matter where you make your bed, um, is something worth contending for. And I don't think that God ever calls us to a life of spiritual and intellectual dishonesty. And so the very thing that we are afraid of um, often can be the thing that sets us free, is the thing that we need to lean into, because we find that actually the um, birthplace of our intimacy with God is there in that wilderness and in that deconstruction. That doesn't mean, of course, that you don't want to keep moving, right? That you don't want to get to a place of maybe at some point being able to reconstruct some things or rebuild some things that will look very different. I know my process looked very different. I was surprised at both what I left behind and what I reclaimed. But um, but it is something that I think um, becomes something that is um, an unveiling and a goodness in our lives. Man, the intellectual dishonesty thing, that, I think that sits on the shoulders of a lot of people Mm -hmm. that they think and feel in one way and worship and serve and pray and participate in another. Yes. Is there some form of that that is constant? Like, is there a place? Because the the whole line is, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, right? Because once you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. (laughs) Um, But there is a sense of, of what's the difference? Okay. So what's the difference between tension, having a tension with your faith community? Because I'm sure, I'm assuming there are some people who are in full deconstruction that you're talking about. The things that got them there are not going to get them to the next place. Um, And then there's also some folks who are probably in the camp of saying, I'm experiencing this high, distinct level of tension between the tradition I'm a part of and the things that I feel strongly about. And that could be a very creative, constructive. How do you, how do you balance, how do you distinguish between those two things? What's intellectual and faithful dishonesty, spiritual dishonesty, and what is just a natural tension to be managed? Um, I don't know that there's a really simple answer for that, which I know, you know, is infuriating for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, This is one of those, those points where I'm always very, very happy to be someone who believes in the active and leading of the Holy Spirit, because I do rely very heavily on that leading, either through scripture or through uh, conversation, through peace, through prayer, um, you know, all those different places, because there have been times where I felt called to stay with at a church or in a community or in a place that I disagreed with on some important things, and yet felt deeply committed to community and to the um, the discipline of disagreeing beautifully and of not 
giving up on, um, you know, embodying the fruit of the spirit just because I'm pretty sure I'm right. You know, and so, you know, I still, my, my spirit is really yeah, right. Yours is exactly, just the spirit. Exactly. But then there's other times when you do walk away where you do have a, a chance to, um, to separate or to, to find that. And I think that one of the things that I have used as a bit of an indicator with people, it's not a fail safe indicator, but one of the things that I will ask people is, uh, do you feel strong enough for this? Like, are you able to to lead in this place and and be the voice? Because sometimes you'll be called into those places of tension and disagreement, um, almost as an advocate, right? I mean, I've seen a lot of women who are in churches that do not acknowledge women's leadership or women in ministry at all, and yet they feel called to stay because they want to advocate for the women who are coming up behind them. So even if they themselves never preach a sermon or sit on the elder board, they're convinced that that's something that they need to pay the price for, for the girls who are coming up behind them. And if you feel strong enough for that, that's great. But if you do not feel strong enough for it, if you do feel like it is wounding you, like it is diminishing the, um, the image of God in you, if it is diminishing your, um, your spirit and your soul and your ability to even understand and see the body of Christ, then you know what? I think you're good to go. <laughs> especially because the body of Christ is so much bigger and more inclusive and wild and good and generous than just that one spot. And so if you feel called to that spot and you're strong enough to stay and live in the tension and continue to love people well and feel that it brings out greater strength and goodness and healing and anointing in you, then great. Stay there and flourish and do the work that God has called you to do. But if you don't, there's no shame in that. And you get to you get to take a step back and say, maybe this isn't my battle. And maybe I need to take a, a minute to find a place where I can flourish and heal and revive. And maybe there's other work that God has called me to do. Yeah. Is there a, is there a favorite story you have of the of seeing some of the things play out from people who have read your books, people who have stepped into this tension. Is there, do you have a favorite story that something that has happened that you've watched and you're like that encapsulates exactly what I'm talking about? You know, I feel like I almost could not pick because I just there's so many stories of I think some of my favorite stories are honestly um, there's there's two groups of, of women that I love 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 to hear from um, really young women in like their teens and their twenties where they are starting their life with this vision of flourishing and goodness and, and strength and their capacity, right. That they are just like little, like on fire, completely lit, utterly woke, ready to show up in the world, care, passionate about justice, unapologetic, convinced that they are good and they are smart and they are strong. And I love them with my whole heart. I love, love, love being with them. But the other group of women, and that I love to hear from are women who are who, on whose shoulders I stand on. So those are the women from who, who did a lot of this work in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so now they find themselves in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And they will email me and just be such amazing or, or get in touch with me or go for coffee or send a letter, whatever it is. And just their relief and their joy in the resurgence of these conversations and even their cheering for us and their sense of their 
prayer um and be one of us who is not who is like forging a new path right <laughs> like we are all standing on someone's shoulders and i'm so grateful for the women who broke the path so i could do the work that i do now and i'm really excited about the women who are coming up behind me who hopefully i'll make things just a little bit easier for uh, i'm glad that you're standing on the shoulders of the people that have come before and continuing to do this work i think there are a lot of people who would resonate not only with Jesus Feminist, but also with uh, the bigger, the story that is unfolding in a book like Out of Sorts, where um, folks who are in that deconstruction, like I see in there, there's this whole idea of, there's an image of the prairie that really stood out to me, this resilience, like we're going to stick this thing out uh, until, until we can't. And then there's this renovation, the a loss of something, a losing of Jesus, a losing of not Jesus per se, but our, our view of Jesus. And then there's this reclamation that happens. We reclaim something, uh, but it's different. And I think there are a lot of people listening who are just at some point along that continuum who could really uh, be benefited by that. So thank you for your transparency and sharing that because I know it's going to be helpful for a lot of folks. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. What a great conversation. Man, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. That's what I hope is that when you're you're done with an episode of this, that you're like, that was really fun or that was really good. Or I, I picked something up from that because I know every time I do one of these, and just so you know, there, there are like seven or eight of these conversations I've already had um, that I'm just bringing out to you a piece at a time. So it's really cool. It feels sort of like Christmas. I know what you're getting and I know what's coming next. So, uh, But I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. You can find her work uh, on any bookseller's website or uh, in an indie bookstore that you may go to. I would encourage you to support those if you have those. Uh, also, if you'd like to know more about her, read her blog. It's at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Bessie, B-E-S-S-E-Y.com. Uh, she's got all kinds of stuff there, speaking schedule, uh, her blog, a place where you can get her books and uh, things of that nature. Uh, two things. One, uh, keep an eye out. If you would like to be in the know on when this podcast goes live on iTunes, uh, I would encourage you to subscribe to my website, Casey Tigeret, C-A-S-E-Y-T-Y-G-R-E-T-T.com. And you'll get a chance to get an email when that comes live uh, through the subscription there. Uh, there's a little tab that just says subscribe, and you can do that. Uh, also, I want to let you know next week, next week is an episode that I'm pretty excited about. Um, it's just going to be me, and we're talking about the tuning fork. And the air conditioning just kicked on in my house. We're going to be talking about the tuning fork and how things that resonate with us may have something to say about who it is that we're supposed to be. So until then, be well, live wisely. Peace. Peace.